0: At Bruce Exclusive, welcome back. You know, we've been all caught up in the Buffalo Bills bubble. But now the bubble has to pop. We got to take a look around the AFC East and see what the teams that are currently looking up at our division champion, Buffalo Bills, did in their attempts to climb the mountain. So that's the first thing we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the AFC East Divisional Opponents. Then we're going to take a break, and then I have something not football-related that we're going to talk about, not even sports-related that we are going to talk about. I will give you a warning at that time, and you will have the option to be able to turn off this podcast if you do not wish to consume that content, or if you have children listening who you would prefer to not consume that content. But, we are going to dive into the AFC East draft classes, starting with the New York Jets. As a recap, in round one, they made three, not one, not two, but three first-round picks. Sauce Gardner, cornerback from Cincinnati at number four. Garrett Wilson, wide receiver, Ohio State at number 10. And then traded up and took Jermaine Johnson, the second defensive end, Florida State at 26 10 picks later there they were again trading up to take Brees Hall running back Iowa State in the third round they took Jeremy Ruckert tight end Ohio State in round four Max Mitchell offensive tackle Louisiana and Michael Clemens defensive end Texas A&M and then they were done seven picks but all in the first four rounds sauce Gardner Garrett Wilson Jermaine Johnson Brees Hall Jeremy Ruckert Max Mitchell Michael Clemens. Now, as I go through each one of these draft classes, I'm going to do three superlatives. Favorite pick, least favorite pick, and I'm not sure. Those are the things I'm going to break down. Now, when I say favorite pick for the AFC East team, I'm going to say favorite pick, as in, if I were a fan of that team, this would be my favorite pick. Obviously, as a fan of a rival team, I would like all their picks to be colossal busts. Because I have a rooting interest, but I'm taking off the rooting interest hat and I'm putting on the, okay, I'm a fan of a different team, but if I wasn't, if I wasn't someone who had a rooting interest, if I was a fan of this team, what would be my favorite? If I was a fan of this team, what would be my least favorite? And if I was a fan of this team, what would I not be so sure about? For the Jets, my favorite pick is Sauce Gardner. Now, I know it's obvious that the first pick would be the favorite in a lot of cases, but Sauce Gardner is an extremely important pick for the New York Jets. Robert Sala comes from the Pete Carroll 4-3, cover three principal defense, and his corners were terrible last year. The Jets had one of the worst defenses in football using essentially any metric, and it's extremely important that they get help on the back end. Now, they have their prized free agent signing from last year from the Cincinnati Bengals, Carl Lawson, coming back from an injury. So they knew they were going to get reinforcements on the defensive line that already includes Quentin Williams. But they needed to get help on the back end. And Sauce Gardner allows them to do those things. I think Sauce Gardner is probably one of the best zone corners in the draft, maybe the best zone corner in the draft for as much as everyone loved watching him in man. I think there's a reason why Derek Stingley went at three and Sauce Gardner went at four. I think it's because Derek Stingley is a better man-to-man corner, or at least projects as that than Sauce Gardner. Well, if you want to run cover three, Sauce Gardner has all the length and size you want. A lot of people thought that there was absolutely no way he was ever going to get past nine because of course, sitting at nine was the Seattle Seahawks, who I just said were part of the tree that gave rise to Robert Selah. So it was absolutely a perfect fit of need and scheme fit and talent necessity and value. Favorite pick, Sauce Gardner. Least favorite pick, Jeremy Ruckert, tight end Ohio State. And not because I don't like Jeremy Ruckert. Please don't misinterpret this. I do like Jeremy Ruckert as a prospect. But the Jets went out this offseason and acquired a pretty decent amount of tight ends. Like they went out and got C.J. Uzama from the Cincinnati Bengals, who had a really good year last year. They went out and got Tyler Conklin from the Minnesota Vikings, who also had a pretty good year last year. So you went and got yourself a TE3 and it's not like Conklin and Uzama are old people and you need to start succession planning at tight end three they're plenty young and so when I look at the Jeremy Rucker pick it's not that I don't like Jeremy Rucker it's I just don't see a path for him either he becomes your starting tight end in year two in which case C.J. Uzama's tight end two, Tyler Conklin's tight end three, you probably over in that spot at that point. And it's not like the Jets didn't have other needs in the third round that they could have addressed with players who potentially had an easier and smoother path to playing time than Jeremy Ruckert. Again, I like Jeremy Ruckert. I just don't like it for the Jets. In the same sense that I really like Sauce Gardner for the Jets, I don't like Jeremy Ruckert for the Jets. I just, I don't get it. When it comes to I'm not sure, it's Brees Hall. Listen, I think Brees Hall is a great fit in that system. But goodness gracious, what is what is poor Michael Carter got to do to catch a break? That guy finally gets a chance, and I think he plays really well for a fourth-round pick. Last year, I mean, if you nail a running back pick in the fourth round, that's huge surplus value because you got a day three starting running back. Let's go. But then you went and traded up in the second round to get... Uh, another player to go with him. I think Brees Hall's going to be fine in that system. I actually think there's a chance Brees Hall could be the best version of himself in that Jets offensive rushing system. I just didn't think you needed to do it. I think that you could have gotten, again, a player who was just as good as Brees Hall, but at a more premium position and a more premium need than running back. So simultaneously, I acknowledge that Brees Hall could be the best version of himself in that offensive rushing system, I do think outside zone is probably great for Brees Hall. But poor Michael Carter, man. What's the guy got to do? I think he would have been perfectly fine as your starting running back this year. And you could have gotten good production from him. And you could have gotten away with having a fourth round pick as your starting running back for three and a half seasons. And then you could have spent the second round pick, 36 overall on a more significant need at a more premium position. So I don't hate the pick. I just, I'm just not sure. Let's move on to the Dolphins. The Dolphins had a really small draft class, So this is going to be really fun to try and pick one, two, three superlatives with only four draft picks. In round three, number 102, they picked Channing Tindall, linebacker, Georgia. In round four, number 125 overall, Eric Ezukanma. Wide receiver, Texas Tech. Round seven, they had two picks. Cameron Good, outside linebacker, California. And Skylar Thompson, quarterback, Kansas State. My favorite pick for the Dolphins was Channing Tindall. I think that there's a chance that Josh Allen, Okie doking Kiko Alonso, is still in the backs of minds of Dolphins fans and the Dolphins front office. You need people who can run at the linebacker position, if you're going to play against Josh Allen twice a year, that's a great pick for what that defense wants to do. And you really, really, really want to have a spy on Josh Allen. You need somebody who can move and Channing Tindall can do that. So take advantage of the fact that you have a really, really good Georgia defense and people can't pick all of them and take a player who some people thought had a better shot at being an impact player. NFL player, then to Kobe Dean, who was also taken in the third round. So take a freak athlete, take someone who can spy Josh Allen. I love that pick for the Dolphins. My least favorite pick is Skylar Thompson. I understand it's 247. I get it. But again, there's only four picks. I got to do something. So my least favorite pick was Skylar Thompson. I understand taking a third string developmental quarterback in the seventh round, by all means. But Skyler Thompson's passing was not good last year. I didn't think he was a draftable prospect. And when they initially took him, I was wondering if they were going to have him switch positions. Now, after looking it over and reading up on their situation, I don't think they're going to. So again, it's hard to find a least favorite pick when there's only four because you could do a lot of different things and it's a seventh round pick. So I'm hard pressed to smack them too much for it. But if you're setting fire to a pick, you're setting fire to a pick. And I don't like Skylar Thompson's projection as an NFL quarterback, even if it's a third-string developmental guy. Give me somebody with some more high-level traits. I feel like the NFL does this. I've harped on it before. I feel like they look at somebody who is safe and has lack of elite physical tools and go, oh, well, he's a, he's a backup prospect. His ceiling is a backup. If his ceiling is a backup, don't take him. Right, Don't take someone who's sealing a backup because that means you're going to be tr- constantly trying to find someone to replace this player that you drafted. If you're drafting him and immediately hoping that he never has to play, then why did you draft him? Take players with starter level traits who have one or two drastic flaws that made it so that they were available on day three. But at least... Swing for something. If I can't get competence, at least give me variance. I've said this before. When it comes to I'm not sure for the Dolphins, I'm going Cameron Good, outside linebacker, California. He's a 3-4 player at Cal, and given the fact that Josh Boyer was retained as defensive coordinator for the Dolphins, it makes sense a little bit there, but he's not very much like the other linebacker that they took. He doesn't really bend as a pass rusher. And I kind of thought he'd have to convert to a four, three linebacker, but I'm not really sure what Josh Boyer is going to do this year because he doesn't have Brian Flores anymore. And there was some rumors that, you know, it was really a Brian Flores defense, which is actually a bill Belichick defense. And I, again, this is an, I don't know pick. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't quite get it, but again, it's a late pick. Yeah. Moving on to the New England Patriots. Round 1, 29th overall, Cole Strange, offensive guard, Tennessee Chattanooga. Round 2, Tyquan Thornton, wide receiver, Baylor. Round 3, Marcus Jones, cornerback, Houston. Round 4, three picks in the fourth round. Jack Jones, cornerback, Arizona State. Pierre Strong, running back, South Dakota State. Bailey Zappi, quarterback, Western Kentucky, 137 in the fourth round. In round 6, they also had three picks. Kevin Harris, running back, South Carolina. South Carolina. Sam Roberts, defensive tackle, Northwest Missouri State. Chasen Hines, center, LSU. And then the seventh round at pick 245, Andrew Stuber, offensive tackle, Michigan. My favorite pick was Tyquan Thornton out of Baylor. Yes, you can make an argument that this was a reach based on where you had seen him being projected moving forward. But the Nelson Aguilar thing didn't really work out for the New England Patriots. And they want to isolate the variable when it comes to Mac Jones's downfield passing. Now, I know that we all just kind of think that Mac Jones is just not someone who's going to be consistently making downfield passes in the NFL. But the Patriots need to make sure that it's a Mac Jones thing and not a weapons thing. So they went out and got Tyquan Thornton. Now, you might look at Tyquan Thornton and his size profile and think, yikes, tall, thin, fast, not historically a good combination. But 4 to 8 in the 40. And it shows up on film. He's very fast. He's very vertical. They want to isolate the variable, not just about Mac Jones in general, but about a specific trait of Mac Jones. And I think for their situation, this is the pick I would argue I like the most. My least favorite pick, Bailey Zappi. Sam Howell was on the board. I just, I don't get it with Bailey Zappi. I really don't. I mean, if you want to, Take a seventh round on her, maybe. But I I just finished talking about the way the NFL views backup quarterbacks and how I absolutely just don't agree with the way that NFL views backup quarterbacks. Bailey Zappi falls into that. Crazy production. But I I just, I look at the physical tools and I say, okay, do you think you're going to get another Tom Brady? At least he was tall. But Bailey Zappi, I just, I don't see it. I just don't see it at all. And to me, you're just setting fire to a fourth round pick. The I'm not sure pick is Pierre Strong. I like Pierre Strong. But much like the Brees Hall pick for the Jets, did anyone look at the New England Patriots and say, they need reinforcements at running back? The Patriots picked two. Pierre Strong in the fourth, and then Kevin Harris again in the sixth. They have nine million running backs. They have three to five running backs on that roster every single year that I'm like, yeah, yeah, they're fine. And they don't specialize in any particular one of the running backs when it comes to offensive philosophy. They mix and match. But that running back room is now Damian Harris, James White, Ramondre Stevenson, Pierre Strong, Kevin Harris, and J.J. Taylor. Pick any three of those and I'm fine with it. Any three of those at all, and I'm completely fine with their running back room if I'm a Patriots fan. It's just just a redundancy. When it comes to that. And I don't, I think Pierre Strong is a good player. But Damian Harris is a really good player and consistently underrated. Ramondre Stevenson, good player. James White has consistently been one of the best pass catching backs in the NFL. Now he's coming off a hip injury. But you also have JJ Taylor and you drafted Kevin Harris. It's just a lot of redundancy. And I feel like you're going to end up cutting players. It's going to create inefficiency in resource allocation because you decided to do that. So we went through. The Jets, draft class. We went through the Dolphins, draft class. We went through the Patriots, draft class. I have some overarching thoughts. First off, the Buffalo Bills are now simultaneously the hunted and the template. And that's an interesting position to be in. New England didn't have the horses to cover Buffalo. They went out and got two corners. Miami got an incredibly fast linebacker. Because as mentioned before, they might still be scarred from watching Josh Allen okey-doke Kiko Alonso. The Jets loaded up on offense around Zach Wilson to find out if he's the guy and isolate the variable. Like the shadow of the Patriots previously hung over this division, so too now does the Bills' shadow. Not as long and not as ominous, but growing and intimidating enough that you want to simultaneously stop it And also emulate it. The second thing. You have to decide for yourself whether or not you want to count Tyreek Hill for the Dolphins as part of the draft class or not. Because they did utilize draft capital to get him. I have a tendency to look at acquisitions like that as more of a free agency acquisition. Accompanied by the loss of a draft pick. Because free agency acquisitions are known quantities. And draft picks are not. When you talk about draft picks, it's all about projection. When you talk about acquiring a player like Tyreek Hill or A.J. Brown for the Philadelphia Eagles, there is much, much less projection involved in the sense that it's basically a free agent acquisition. The only projection you're thinking about is to the new system, to the new team. But you know what the person's capable of. You've seen them on other teams perform at whatever level they performed before. So I look at it kind of like a free agency acquisition along with the loss of a draft pick. But if you choose to look at it like a draft acquisition, that's going to change the way you feel about these things. Final thing. The Patriots are going to get the benefit of the doubt back again when they prove that they deserve it back again. So I'm not going to do that thing where I go, well, let's Bill Belichick. Because they haven't drafted well enough over the last couple of years to be in a spot where they just are immune from all criticism because it's Bill Belichick. He's not Teflon Bill anymore. That's not how this works. So if I want to look at him and go, Bill, what are you doing with the Pierre Strong thing? Not that Pierre Strong's not a good player, but what are you doing? If I want to look at him and go, what are you doing with Bailey Zappi? I'm gonna. And the argument that, well, he's Bill Belichick, that's not the end of the conversation. You're not allowed to say, Hey, that's Bill Belichick. What do you think you're doing criticizing him? You're not allowed to do that. There's enough tape on the Patriots' draft that you're not allowed to say that they deserve all the benefit of the doubt. So, those are my overarching thoughts on the AFC East draft classes. Now, we are going to take a break. We're going to come back. After the break, we're going to have a non football related discussion. If you are not comfortable hearing me talk about that, if you have children, I know there's plenty of parents who listen to this podcast in the car with their children. If you do not wish for your children to hear that topic of conversation, which will be related to the shooting that occurred in Buffalo this past weekend, then now would be the time to go ahead and the podcast we will pick up next week and you can avoid any of that content that you do not wish to consume. We will take a quick break. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. As I mentioned before the break, we are going to have a conversation now that revolves around some things that I would like to say regarding the tragedy that occurred in Buffalo this past weekend. And if you are someone Who might be otherwise inclined to tell me to stick to sports? This is your opportunity, again, as a secondary opportunity to exit stage left out of this podcast. If you remain, you are assuming the responsibility to listen to my non football, non sports related topic. When many factors contribute to a problem, multifaceted solutions are necessary. But in a social media world that is restricted in characters, what it leads to is the restriction of the breadth of ideas. It leads to singular ideas harped on by each person, and the one selected by that person is the one most salient to them, or the one they are most qualified on which to speak. The absence of multifaceted information threads with many pronged solutions from people is not necessarily a reflection of that person believing the solution is simple. Rather, it's simply a person speaking on the factor that is most relevant to them or the one that may be present of mind. They are often not presenting something they believe to be the factor. They are presenting something they believe to be a factor. For some, the attack on a Buffalo supermarket over the past weekend, perpetrated by an armed, self-identified white supremacist that left 10 black members of the community dead and three more wounded, will generate a conversation about firearm access. For others, mental health early recognition, treatment, and preventative measures are issues about which they feel strongly. It might be political party and media vernacular. It could be the free flow of extremist propaganda and ideas, learned racism, the presence of evil, or many other individual factors. The discussion of one of these factors is not the invalidation of all others. You are seeing an action through the lens of experience of the person speaking. The idea that there is one singular act, narrowly and strategically targeted, that will make us not have to mourn like this ever again, is what turns that mourning into bickering. We spend so much time arguing over which silver bullet to use on this monster, that we don't properly recognize that it isn't a werewolf we're fighting. It isn't a vampire. It isn't some rogue Superman where there's one easily identifiable answer that solves everything. This isn't a game of rock, paper, scissors. So if someone out there brings up a different solution than you after a community tragedy, I beg of you to show them some grace. Because in any problem dealing with creatures as complex as humans, the solution is far more likely to be an and solution than an or solution. Another way You can show people who react to is by not asking them to not make it political. I mentioned a few of the contributing factors that people may feel strongly about earlier. These issues are at their core political in nature. The narrative around, control over, action against, or funding for these factors is heavily influenced by local, state, and federal governmental actions. Asking someone to mourn or respond completely detached from any of the contributing factors they likely had a strong opinion about prior to the tragedy is an exercise in futility. These situations cannot be apolitical, and trying to force them to be because you're afraid of or angered by political conversations potentially turning into partisan ones will just end up in secondary conflict that distracts from the issue at hand. These other commenters might be hurting like you're hurting. They might be hurting in a different way than you're hurting. But they're likely feeling something on the spectrum of sadness. And they're trying their best to make sense of how this could occur while trying to assign logic to an illogical world that consistently tells them that the thing they hold most precious can be taken from them in a blink of an eye through no fault of their own. Their heart is likely in the right place. And at this point... I will take as many hearts in the right place I can possibly get. Because I may not be able to identify every contributing factor to healing, but I certainly know that hearts being in the wrong place is one of the contributing factors to tragedy. So I'm going to talk about a factor that's salient to me. I'm going to talk about the two constructs that have guided human behavior since the dawn of civilization inherent moral compass and fear of consequences. They are the two great checks against rampant violence and the downfall of society. They are what keeps people from strangling you when you cut in front of them in line. They're what stop you from punching someone in the face because they double charged you for potato chips at the supermarket. Inherent moral compass and fear of consequence. Have one or the other, preferably both, but never neither. Having neither opens the gateways to violence and a contributing factor to the disillusion of these two constructs is dehumanization. If your inherent moral compass doesn't stop you from harming the person standing across from you and you don't fear any of the potential consequences of your actions, even including death, torture, or a lifetime of imprisonment, then the barriers that have been put in place to stop you from committing heinous acts of violence have now been removed the pillars upon which a civilization that allows its people to feel safe is built have been removed. This is the danger of hate. Hate can remove both of the pillars of the dam holding violence at bay because it's what starts the dehumanization process. You can hate someone so much that they no longer look to you like a human life with their own hopes, dreams, fears, loved ones, You hate them so much that they're just a symbol of the thing that makes you so angry and fearful. They're not flesh and blood anymore. They're numbers on a page. They're check marks. They're an idea. Numbers, check marks, and ideas don't have feelings. They've been dehumanized. So because the human life you hate so much has been stripped of its importance, the key factor in the inherent moral compass side of the equation has been compromised. But this hate-caused dehumanization can also create the perception of ideological warfare. You see, if that person at the grocery store isn't a human, but rather an idea, fighting an idea can be justified by those who believe themselves to be virtuous executors of what is right. And if I'm fighting for what is right in an ideological war, I should be willing to sacrifice myself for the cause, right? Right? If it really means that much to me, if I truly believe I'm fighting for a cause bigger than myself and I'm making the world a better place, why wouldn't I be willing to sacrifice myself? And so the second barrier, fear of consequence, is now removed. Both of the things that keep violence in check are removed because of dehumanization. The idea that human life can be minimized seeps its way into our system like a poison our emotional immune system is taken completely offline by our consumption of hate. And so the actions that would be stopped by a healthy emotional status manifest themselves now. The things we never would have dreamt we'd do have not only become justifiable, but logical, necessary even because we're poisoned. We're poisoned because somebody else told us that any present or future potential suffering is the fault of some person we've never met. They told us that if it wasn't for that idea, the world would be a better place. And those people out there, they're not human beings with intrinsic value after all. They're representation of an idea. So they can be easily discarded. Dehumanization. People who have different religious, political, economic, cultural, and social statuses, preferences, leanings, they're defined only by their differences and nothing else. Until the differences are all that they are. They cease to be any of the things that make them human and are instead just an example of the ideas that you hate. The things that make them different from you take away their humanity far more than the things they have in common with you reinforce it. So as I did at the opening to this monologue, I once again acknowledge that the devaluation of human life is not the only contributing factor to tragedies such as this, but it's one that's important to me. Because it's my lens. It's how I see the world. When I look at the conversation on social media, that's one of the things I see first. And other people are going to see something different because their experiences are different. And we should listen to those people whose experiences are different than ours. Because it's one of the ways we can help stave off the dehumanization that is pushed all around us. Because whenever you see someone justify violence, whether it be online, in a book, in a manifesto, In a speech, it will likely be partnered with a statement that indicates that the target of that violence has been reduced to an idea. Maybe it's their political leanings. Maybe it's their nationality, their sexual orientation, their skin color, their religion. In the case of the Buffalo shooter, it was skin color. He justified murder because of melanin content. When I say it like that, it sounds like it's not even a real statement. It sounds like it's fake. But that's what broad brush classification does when it leads to dehumanization. It's not just lazy, it's dangerous. Because ideas don't have individual experiences, people do. And listening to those experiences can help keep humans human in our eyes. But he was listening to different voices than the ones that would have kept his victims as human in his eyes. Do you want to know one of the reasons why diversity is a strength? Because if we knew people, really knew people who were different than us, it'd be a lot harder to hate people who shared commonalities with the people we knew, because it'd be harder to dehumanize them. They'd remind us of the people we knew, even if they didn't remind us of ourselves. It's a lot harder to say, I hate all liberals, if your neighbor who helped you shovel your driveway and came to your son's birthday party is a liberal. It's a lot harder to say I hate all black people if the coworker who gave you half their sandwich when you left yours at home and covered for you when you ducked out early to pick up your sick kid from school is black. And if you can't dehumanize them as a group, it's harder to enact violent plans against them as a group. Even if you didn't get along better with your neighbors, if they're drastically different than you, you might get along better with the rest of the world if your neighbors are drastically different than you. Because there's a higher probability you'll listen to and you'll know people whose experiences don't match your own. But in the absence of knowing people, that broad brush classification is what some believe because it's what they consume. And it's what they consume because it's what's preached to them. And it's what's preached to them because it's easy to digest. And it's easy to digest because it's lazy and requires little to no effort on the part of the consumer. A man much wiser than me told me one time that an existence is made up of millions of binary choices between what is right and what is easy. And it's easy to see people as an idea because it doesn't require that you get to know them at all. You can just let the communication whispering in your ear tell you whether or not that person you're looking at is good or bad based on the bucket into which the puppet master placed them. So let's not shirk our responsibility. Let's refuse be puppets let's choose the right path instead of the easy one let's not simplify people let's not reduce them to an idea so they can be dehumanized in our eyes because we know where the easy path leads we have seen where the easy path leads instead let's listen to people and let's know them because humans are a complicated and diverse collection of memories traits skills, ideas, and preferences. And let's acknowledge that there is messaging out there that doesn't want you to know people before judging their worth. Because knowing them might restore the humanity to them that so much of the world is trying to erode. Let's give back the humanity to any that have lost it in our eyes and identify and reject openly any and all messaging that attempts to decide for us The humanity of an individual based upon only one of the many things about them. Let's be a little more human. And let's choose to recognize the humanity of those around us. Even if humanity is the only thing we have in common, it's enough. It absolutely has to be enough.